is going on, true crime fans. I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Our new fall merch line is officially out. We have sweatshirts, we have a beanie, and we have a phone case. We've got some really great items, so if you want to go check those out, head over to goingwestpod.com and click the shop tab. Yeah, there's some really great sweatshirts. I even included a child's pullover so that your kids can rep Going West, because who doesn't want that? And yeah, there's just some great new merch, so go check it out, because it is officially out. Also, one more quick thing before we get started. The new show, The Dark Parts, is going to be released in a couple days on October 1st. I just want you guys to, uh, I just wanted to give you guys a heads up because we're really excited about it. We hope that you guys are too. So let's get spooky. Yeah, check that out. The Dark Parts. It's going to be out everywhere that you listen to podcasts. All right, guys. This is episode 88 of Going West. So let's get into it. In 1997, a Boston woman headed to Philadelphia with her husband for his business trip. But during this trip, she went sightseeing and never returned. Investigators began looking into those who were close to her to see if they had done anything to her. But meanwhile, they were getting tips regarding multiple possible sightings of her, making it unclear if she was dead or alive. Months later, everything changed. This is the murder of Judy Smith. Judith, who went by Judy, Eldridge was born on December 15, 1946, to parents Lois and Webster Eldridge in Hyannis, Massachusetts, which is a coastal village in the Cape Cod Peninsula. Judy grew up with a couple brothers in a working-class family, so she had a very good work ethic from the start. But after she graduated high school, she went straight into marriage, and this didn't last long at all. They were both 18, and he was facing the possibility of being drafted into the Vietnam War. So he actually fled to Sweden to avoid this from happening, thus breaking off their marriage. Soon after this failed relationship in the mid-1960s, Judy met a man named Charles Bradford, who worked at a racetrack. And they went on to get married and have two children together, one son and one daughter. While the children were still young, Judy and Charles decided that things weren't really working out between them, so they divorced, and Judy was left to care for the children alone, and she was jobless. But luckily, as I said, she had great work ethic, and not only that, but she had a very caring disposition, so she decided to work towards becoming a nurse. Shout out to all the nurses out there. Thank you. She put herself through nursing school while she was raising her two young kids. After the divorce, she had been put on welfare, so the government was giving her money to help raise her kids until she could get a job. But after nursing school, she was able to get herself out of welfare by working really hard and becoming a nurse for real. 
She wasn't afraid of the challenge, and she conquered and became a huge success and a great example for her kids. She was even able to take them on vacations, once to Europe and once to Thailand, along with other spots around the U.S. Soon enough, in the mid-1980s, when Judy was around 40 years old, she became an at-home care nurse for a very ill man in Boston, Massachusetts. And funny enough, this is how she actually met her to-be third husband. Since Judy cared for this man almost every single day, she eventually met his son, Jeffrey Smith, who was a very successful local lawyer, uh, who had one teenager of his own, and he was also divorced. Judy and Jeff became smitten with each other, and Jeff loved how kind and compassionate Judy was, especially to his own father. And then they began dating. Things became serious between them, but they waited a whole 10 years to get married, since Judy already had two failed marriages under her belt. She just wanted to make sure that she and Jeff were a great pair before getting hitched. In November 1996, when Judy was almost 50 years old, she and Jeff got married. And by this time, their separate kids were in their 20s and living on their own, meaning it was just Jeff and Judy ready to start their lives together as husband and wife in Jeff's Boston home. Five months later, on April 9, 1997, Jeff had a business conference in Philadelphia. One of the organizations that Jeff represented was hosting an event, which was the Northeast Pharmaceutical Conference, and Judy decided to go with him. They had friends in the neighboring state of New Jersey, so they figured that Jeff would attend the conference while Judy explored the city, and then they'd head over to visit the friends afterwards. But when they arrived at the Logan International Airport in Boston to get on their plane to Philly, Judy realized that she had forgotten her driver's license. The conference began later that afternoon, so he had to get on this flight and, unfortunately, leave Judy behind. It had recently become the law in the U.S. that traveling with identification was mandatory, so she wouldn't be able to board the plane without her ID. They decided that she would go home without him and get her license and then get a later flight and just meet him in Philly. So Judy hops on a bus and heads back to their home to fetch her ID. She hung out at the house for a little while since her new flight wasn't until 7.30 p.m. But as the afternoon passed, she got back on a bus and headed for the Boston airport for the second time that day. When Judy landed in Philadelphia, she got into a taxi and headed to the Doubletree Hotel at 10 p.m., which is where the conference was being held and also where they were staying. As an apology for forgetting her ID, she greeted Jeff with flowers when she arrived, and then they went back to their room together where they ordered pizza through room service, and they talked about what their plans were for the following day. Since this was Judy's first time in Philly, She wanted to go sightseeing, specifically to see Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell, while Jeff would be at the conference. Jeff thought this was a great idea and knew that Judy would do well out there on her own since she had traveled a lot in her day, and she was a pretty street-smart person. The following morning, on Thursday, April 10th, 1997, Jeff went downstairs to get breakfast around 7.30 a.m. in the hotel's restaurant but Judy didn't accompany him because she was still asleep. But when he got back an hour later, Judy was awake and getting into the shower to start her day. They kind of joked around and laughed and just talked, and Jeff recommended that she have breakfast downstairs before going out sightseeing because what he had was delicious. 
With that, Jeff went back downstairs and attended the conference, where he would be the rest of the day. But before he left, Judy had mentioned to him that she planned to take the flash bus, which was perfect for tourists since it's a form of quick transportation around Philly that stops every 15 minutes and goes to all the best historic sites. They also agreed to meet back at the hotel before 5.30 p.m. so they could attend a cocktail party together at 6 p.m. and then meet up with their New Jersey friends for dinner. Jeff got back to the room around 5 p.m. and waited for a bit, but Judy never showed. So after 5.30, he decided to go downstairs wondering if Judy got the times mixed up and was waiting for him at the cocktail party. But when he got there, he looked around for Judy and didn't see her anywhere. At this point, he didn't understand where she would be and tried not to worry. Instead, he just went back and forth from the room to the party a couple times, hoping he would cross paths with her. But after around 45 minutes with Judy absolutely nowhere to be found, he feared that something had happened to her while she was out sightseeing. And he asked the hotel's concierge to call all the local hospitals for her, and no one by the name Judy Smith had been checked into any of them. Then Jeff called his daughter, as well as Judy's kids, to see if anyone had heard from her, and no one had. And that's when Jeff got into a taxi and went to the tourist spots that Judy had been interested in seeing that day, hoping that he'd find her and that she had just lost track of time. The sun set that night between 7.30 and 8 p.m., so it was almost dark out by the time he was looking for her. So it didn't make any sense to him why she would still be out so late. After going all around the city with no luck, he finally called police. But the Philadelphia police told him that he had to wait 24 hours to report her missing, so he should call back in the morning. Jeff was feeling really hopeless at this point, since he had to wait to report her missing. So he talked about the situation with his fellow colleagues, and even the mayor of Philly, who happened to be at this conference. The night went on, and Judy never returned to the room, not even by the next morning. None of their New Jersey friends had heard from or seen her, so that was off the table as well. And that morning, which was Friday, April 11th, Jeff sped over to the police station and reported his wife Judy missing, and they were suddenly super on top of it. And this is probably because the mayor had actually gotten involved and wanted them to find Judy. Police started by asking hotel employees if they had seen Judy the previous morning before she went sightseeing. One person who worked at the Doubletree stated that Judy had asked him where she could catch the flash bus, which was in the early afternoon. Judy Smith had even been featured in the local paper in hopes of getting some witness sightings, and someone reached out saying that they had seen her exiting a bus station about 10 minutes away from the Doubletree Hotel. There wasn't really anything at this particular stop, so police assumed that she had likely gotten off to use the restroom or to ask for directions. But Chinatown was nearby, and that's somewhere that she did have interest in visiting, so that was a possible destination as well. Another person reached out and said they believed to have seen Judy that day near the Doubletree around 3 p.m., and she was acting disoriented. But when police went to that spot, they found a homeless woman who looked strangely similar to Judy, and she was acting erratically. So they concluded that this was likely the woman that the witness had seen. And I'd be willing to bet that that's 100% 
the woman that the witness had saw. Oh, definitely. And we posted photos on our social media if you want to go take a look at Judy. She's just kind of like average looking. She doesn't have any really standout features. So it's kind of hard when witnesses are coming forward saying they saw her because she kind of just looks like a normal person. So definitely makes this a tougher investigation. Investigators continued searching for clues while Jeff and family passed out missing person flyers around Philadelphia. Dozens of witness sightings came in over the next few days, but it didn't bring police any closer to finding out what happened to her. Jeff even hired a private investigator, so he had all the help that he could get. And this private investigator found that an employee at a New Jersey mall that's only 20 minutes away from Philadelphia had seen a woman that matched Judy's description acting very strangely in the store. She said that she was shopping for a dress for her daughter and then tried to get a random young woman to leave with her, thinking she was her daughter. The woman was even wearing a red backpack, just like Judy had been the day she went sightseeing. When the incident was described to Judy's family, they were incredibly confused but felt this could have been her. And Judy didn't have any kind of mental health history, so she wasn't known to act erratically or disoriented at any times. So this aspect really just didn't make sense. But since the sighting was so close and both an employee and a customer confirmed that it was likely Judy after seeing her photo, her family felt like it kind of had to be her. And the sightings kept pouring in over the next few months. And one woman even reported seeing her at a casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Police felt that since she was an adult and there had been supposed sightings of her, she was probably fine and left on her own free will. They especially thought this after they spoke with Judy's friends. Some of them said that they wouldn't have been surprised if Judy had left to have time alone or figure herself out since she apparently wasn't very happy in her marriage. She loved Jeff and had been with him for over 10 years, but she really didn't like being married. She only got married because Jeff and his mom wanted it to happen. Also, Jeff presented Judy with a prenup before their wedding, and this kind of turned Judy off a little bit because she didn't like the idea of prenups, but she signed it anyway. It seemed that overall, she just wasn't super happy with how things were going, and since becoming married, Jeff started working less because he was making his transition from his private practice law job to start teaching. So this meant that he was home a lot more and she felt like he had suddenly become very needy, which was also off-putting. But still, I mean, would she really just leave in the middle of a trip because she felt her husband was too needy? I don't think so. Nah, I don't think so either. There was also another theory that investigators had that they felt could definitely be a possibility. And that theory involved Jeff killing Judy in Boston. They believed that it was possible that Judy never even got on the plane to Philadelphia at all. And the whole story about her forgetting her ID at home was just something that Jeff said to give a reason why Judy wouldn't have come along with him. As they exercised this idea and asked the people at the conference if they had seen Judy, everyone said no. They knew what she looked like and who she was, so they would have been able to identify her by sight. But during the evening she checked in, and the day she supposedly left to go sightseeing, she somehow went by completely unnoticed. And police felt strongly that it was because 
She wasn't there to begin with. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. My absolute favorite app is Audible, because not only do they have thousands of incredible podcasts, including ours, but they also have an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. Like from celebrity memoirs, to motivation, to business, to my favorite, mysteries and thrillers. Audible really is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases that can include eerie soundscapes, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Right now, I'm listening to this unputdownable thriller fiction called Just Another Missing Person by Jillian McAllister, which I think you guys would love. To try Audible free for 30 days, visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. 
And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass, because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door. I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. The next step in this theory that Judy never made it to Philly at all was to check the hotel room for any signs that Judy had been there. Something that stood out to investigators was the lack of feminine products. There was no makeup, no hairbrush, and she didn't have very many clothes packed. Not even any of her underwear had been worn. And this was strange considering she had supposedly taken a shower the morning that she disappeared, so no one really understood this part. But as far as the makeup and hair stuff goes, her daughter said that she often kept that stuff with her in her red backpack, which she did take that day. So that could kind of help explain why she didn't have that stuff in the hotel. But it still all seemed a bit strange. However, some people did come forward saying that they saw her, like that person at the front desk um, who remembered giving Judy a key when she arrived around 10 p.m., They can't be sure that it was her, but they do believe that they had helped her that evening. Police also were able to confirm that Judy had a flight for 7.30 p.m. on April 9th and that the ticket was indeed used. So ultimately, this theory that Jeff had killed Judy and that she was never in Philly, this doesn't really seem possible. Also, we know that Jeff was very adamant about finding Judy. I mean, he was literally out there looking for her. And all of their friends and family said that Jeff was just a really great guy who didn't have a mean bone in his body. And he absolutely loved Judy. They could never see him do anything that would hurt her. So to me, not very likely. And again, Jeff was being super helpful with the entire investigation, even spending a ton of money on a PI to help find his wife. We definitely don't see this kind of emotion and compassion from other husbands that we discuss on this show. But regardless, they asked Jeff if he would take a polygraph test, which he agreed to only on the condition that the FBI would be the ones to conduct said test and that they would help with the case. Unfortunately, there wasn't really much to go on regarding Judy's disappearance, so they couldn't get the FBI involved and they really didn't want to anyway. So in turn, Jeff wouldn't take a polygraph. He said he just really wanted the big boys to handle this because he didn't feel the local police were doing enough, but he didn't get his wish. He still really wanted to help get the word out on Judy so people could help from all over the U.S., so he mailed countless missing persons flyers around the country to make sure everyone knew to look out for her. 
and this ended up paying off. Months went by, and there was no real sign of Judy. She didn't even contact her children. So most of the people close to her were really worried and felt like even if she left on her own free will, she would have reached out by now to let everyone know that she was alive and well. Especially since Judy was such a strong and independent person, she really wasn't the type to just run off when something wasn't right. And the fact that she also had a child. I mean, you'd think that that would be a a pretty big uh, motivating factor in not just running away and disappearing. Well, exactly. She didn't contact either of her children. And yeah, they were in their 20s. So sometimes when your kids are older, some time passes before you talk. But still, you don't just leave and not let anyone know you're gone, knowing that people are probably worrying about you. You know, like it just it didn't connect. And Judy was definitely the kind of person that stood her ground and was honest about what she wanted in life. But everything changed in September of that same year, something that just confused everyone to no end. On September 7th, 1997, almost exactly five months after Judy went missing, a man and his son were hunting for deer at the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. While they were making their way past a picnic area, they came across something wrapped in a blue blanket. As they got closer, they noticed that it was a skeleton that was only partially buried, and the skeleton had clothes on, blue jeans, hiking boots, and insulated underwear. Most of the bones were intact, but some had been scattered, and this was likely done by animals. The man immediately called authorities to report it, and when they arrived, they discovered more. There were a couple of holes in the ground near the remains that were filled with various items. In one small hole was a blue backpack filled with winter clothes and $80 in cash. And in the other hole had a shirt with $87 cash and a pair of sunglasses in the pocket. After an autopsy was conducted, the medical examiner determined that the remains belonged to a white female who was either in their late 40s or their early 50s. Between the punctures on her bra and the possible jabs on her bones, they determined that she had likely died by stabbing. But a certain cause of death could not be determined, and due to the stage of decomposition, they also couldn't determine when the person actually died. Whoever this woman was also had extensive dental work, which would make it easy to compare dental records with people, and she also had severe arthritis in her left knee. They still didn't know who the woman was, but while they were trying to figure that out, they came across a missing persons flyer for Judy Smith, one that Jeff had mailed out. Although Philadelphia was a 10-hour drive from the Pisgah National Forest, investigators wanted to match Judy's dental records to the body that was found since Judy matched the general description. And once they compared her dental records to the remains, they matched. And let's talk about this for just one second. This is so strange to me because... I just, how did she get to North Carolina? Why was she hiking through the forest? What does this all mean? I totally feel you. We're going to get into the details here in a second, but it's definitely a weird discovery. And the fact that they did compare the dental records for Judy, even though she was a whole 10 hours away where she disappeared, good thing that they did that. But it's really crazy that that this kind of worked out because she could have easily just been a Jane Doe forever. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we see a lot of cases like that. And those cases are so sad and unfortunate because we never have answers. But at least in this case, I mean, her remains are found. I have never read a case like this where the remains are found so far from where they went missing. Like, this is just so odd. So now that Judy's family knew she had been murdered, they wanted to know how and what the hell happened. So investigators immediately began questioning people in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a town of then 65,000 people right next to where Pisgah National Forest is. They brought her photo around and asked locals if they'd seen her, and multiple people said they had. One person in particular worked as a store clerk and remembered a specific conversation with her a few days after she had been reported missing. Of course, the woman didn't know she was a missing person, by the way. The woman said that Judy told her she was visiting Asheville while her husband, who was a lawyer, was at a convention in Philadelphia. Others specifically remembered meeting a woman who looked just like the one in the photo they were shown, whose name was Judy and who was visiting from Boston. Even a hotel clerk believed that Judy had stayed there from April 10th to April 12th. And April 10th was the day that she went sightseeing, but they weren't able to prove this. And unlike what the reports from people in Philadelphia said, everyone in Asheville said that she was a very nice and normal person who was not disoriented or strange at all. And doesn't that make this so much more confusing? Because multiple people, like multiple people who worked in town, again, this is not a very big town, saw her. So this isn't just one person. This is numerous people saying the same thing. Yeah, I just don't understand, I guess, the situation. Did she go sightseeing that day and then she just decided to take off to North Carolina? But that's or... the thing. It's 10 hours away. Like right. it's, not like it's, it's not like it's in the same state or it's just a couple hours away. So it's, this isn't a day trip. I just don't understand it at all. The clothes that were found on Judy's remains were different than the clothes that she had been wearing the day that she went missing. The day she disappeared, she was wearing blue jeans, a dark coat, white sneakers, and of course, her red backpack. But as we mentioned, she was found in hiking attire. And none of the items near her appeared to belong to her. So authorities felt they had to have been the killer's items. And these were Bole sunglasses. So they were men's sunglasses. I'm not sure which style they were, but they were men's sunglasses. So that kind of tells us something. You know, these were not hers. So Someone else was there, and I don't know why there would be buried random items that didn't have anything to do with this murder, like right next to the body. It just doesn't make sense. At this point, they had absolutely no leads. They knew it couldn't have been Jeff because he had been at the conference. And even if this had happened at some other time, they don't believe Jeff would have been able to make it up to where Judy was found on top of the mountain because he was morbidly obese. They know Judy had to have been met with foul play, but it still was a big question of where she was met with foul play, and did she go to North Carolina on her own, or did someone put her there? Her credit card was never used again, so we can't use this to track her movements either, which makes this a lot harder. Part of me just doesn't know why she would travel 10 hours south to go to North Carolina when she was supposed to come back that night to go get cocktails with her husband and then dinner with their friends. Like, I would understand if there was maybe another nearby town she wanted to explore, 
If she wanted to go to Hershey, get some chocolate, that's kind of close by. But a complete other state that's that far away seems like a stretch. I mean, it's only four hours closer to Philly than Boston is. So it's not like she was visiting the West Coast and decided that she wanted to go to California when she was in Oregon. You know, it's like, this is not much closer from where you live anyway. And to not tell Jeff just seems odd. It's just hard to understand why she was in hiking clothes in North Carolina, though. Like, if she had been in her normal clothes, I'd probably just think that someone abducted and attacked her in Philly and then took her to North Carolina to really hide her body. But then why was she wearing hiking clothes? And how is it that multiple people specifically remember talking to a woman named Judy who was from Boston in April, the same month she disappeared? It's just so strange. Yeah, I initially had that thought at first that somebody probably abducted her, took her to a different state, and tried to bury her there. I mean, we've seen cases like that. We've seen that happen before. But the fact that people had seen her in Asheville and had talked to her and said that she was normal, um, she didn't seem disoriented or distraught or anything like that, just leads me to believe that she went to North Carolina by herself. But why? I just don't understand why. Witness sightings are always really iffy with me because I know we've also covered cases where people disappear, there's witness sightings, and then the bodies are found and it's determined that they were dead before these witness sightings occurred. So since she looks so average to me, it's kind of like these people are probably wrong and it wasn't her. But the fact that this is a smallish town and multiple people specifically remember talking to a Judy from Boston whose husband was a lawyer at a conference in Philadelphia, it just, that doesn't make sense that they would just say that if it wasn't true. Like how many Judys from Boston are going to visit Asheville at that very time and tell multiple people? Yeah, the only way I could see that happening is if police had fed these witnesses information beforehand. But again, I don't know why they would do that. That's a good point because I know that did happen with a couple witness sightings in Philadelphia. I remember it specifically, I read that it happened with her red backpack, how the police said, oh, was she wearing a red backpack? And they were like, yeah, she was. You know, they didn't offer that information willingly on their own. The police were the ones who said it. So then it's kind of easy to say, oh, yeah, she was wearing a red backpack. And it's like, was she, though? So that definitely could have happened here as well. Yeah, that's my point. Exactly. It's like you could say, oh, did she have short brown hair? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, did she have a tattoo on her face? Oh, I, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure she had a tattoo on her face. Like, if somebody's giving you that information, you can, like, remember things incorrectly. So I'm wondering if that's the case in Asheville, and if she really was abducted, somebody put different clothes on her, and then just dumped her body. Because if she had, like, a spare pair of clothes in her backpack, within a few days or whatever, she could have changed. That's easy to, that's easy to think. Also, all these Asheville witness sightings are coming in five months after the fact, so that doesn't help with people's memories, too. I wish I knew exactly what they said to investigators and if there was any information fed to them first, but I have no idea. So I do feel like maybe she wasn't happy and she left to North Carolina thinking she would explain later, and then she was met with foul play while on a hike. But I just still don't get why she wouldn't even tell her kids where she was going. And like I said, even though they're in their mid-20s, 
She just left randomly while on a trip specifically to Pennsylvania and then just dips out and goes to North Carolina. Like, I just don't understand that. Yeah, I don't know why you would do that. It seems more likely that you would want to disappear from home rather than like disappear while you're on a trip. But I mean, what do I know? I mean, this is all just speculation. And this is what we do on this show because there's not a lot of information regarding her disappearance. We, we like to talk about it, and we obviously like to talk to you guys about it, and we really want to know what you guys think. Yeah, we have a Facebook discussion group, by the way. It's called Going West Discussion Group. So type that into your Facebook search bar and join, and then you guys can let us know what you think about this case. But yeah, this is just so confusing, and I, I know she was apparently really excited about exploring Philadelphia. She had never been before, and she had all these places that she wanted to go. So to me, it just does not make sense how she just randomly decided to drive 10 hours away or travel 10 hours by car. And there's no proof of her renting a car, getting on a plane, getting on a bus. There's no proof. Right, exactly. So how did she get there? And I don't know. It just seems like something like that, like an abduction or something like that could have very well happened. I mean, people get abducted all the time. I mean, it it just happens. And we previously did an episode on the National Forest serial killer who was in this very area, but he was active from 2005 to 2008, so a whole 10 years later. He was in the neighboring state of Georgia at this time, though. He had just gotten out of prison in 1997 and got a job for an insulated wall systems company, so it seems unlikely that he was loitering in the Asheville area at this time that he was supposedly getting his life sorted, Uh, while he was in Georgia. And in 1997, the National Forest serial killer wasn't a thing yet, and they didn't know who he was until about 2008, which was a man named Gary Hilton. So this theory didn't come into play until much later. But with all this information, they couldn't really make much sense of it or connect what happened to Judy Smith to Gary Hilton. But like we always say, it's a possibility. Since Judy's wedding ring and all that cash was found at the scene, police ruled out that Judy's death was a robbery gone wrong. Judy Smith had ended up 600 miles or 965 kilometers away from Philadelphia. And again, there's no evidence of her taking a plane, bus, rental car, or train to North Carolina. Judy had never expressed to anyone in her family or her friends regarding a desire to visit the Pisgah National Forest or North Carolina at all. Judy's husband, Jeff Smith, passed away in 2005, so just seven years after Judy was killed. And it's more than likely that he died having no idea what really happened to his wife. If you know anything about what happened to Judy Smith, please contact the Philadelphia Police Department's anonymous tip line at 215-686-8477. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening. And next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. These kind of cases are always really tragic because something horrible happened to this poor woman and her kids are one just wondering where their mom is. So again, if anyone has any information, please call that tip line. Thank you so much to everybody who gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts this week. It really helps us get more noticed 
and it just really helps us in general. And we love reading your reviews, so thank you very much. Again, we got some really awesome reviews, but some of you guys didn't leave your name and your location, so make sure if you do leave us a review and you want a shout-out in the show, leave your name and your location. Thank you so much to Bobby in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to Michelle in Henderson, Nevada, and Jenna in Silverdale, Washington. Thank you so much to Rachel in Leland, Illinois, Tracy in Philadelphia, and big thanks to Liza in Tallahassee, Florida. Thank you so much to Amy in Chicago, Noelle in Washington, and thank you to my fellow Daphne in Mississippi. Big thanks going out to Elena in Upland, California, Shauna in Boston, Massachusetts, and Andrea. We're not sure where you're from, but you left us a really awesome uh, long review, and we thought it was funny. We loved it. Yeah, thank you, Andrea. Or Andrea, not sure. Thank you so much to Monica in Denver, Colorado. Thank you to Terry in Sandersville, Georgia. And last but not least, thank you so much to Brooke in Gresham, Oregon. And of course, now we have to give thanks to the people who have joined our Patreon community. If you guys want some bonus episodes of Going West, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast, and just hit the subscribe button. Thank you so much to Kaylee, Nancy, Kate, Milena, Rachel, and thank you to Katarina. Big thanks going out to Emily, Ebj, I think that's, I'm not sure, it's E-B-J, I, I don't know. But thank you so much, Connie, Brooke, Lindsay, and Zach. Thank you so much to Christy, Jane, Rick, Emily, Janelle, Vanessa, and Mackenzie. Big thanks going out to Courtney, Lynn, Shauna, Jackie, Melissa, and Kelly. And last but not least, thank you so much to Katie, Kendra, Catherine, Laura, Caitlin, and Destiny. We really love you guys. Thank you so much. Yes, we appreciate you guys joining the Patreon community. Uh, We have another bonus episode coming out for you guys actually tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. It's going to be a crazy one. So if you want to join and get some bonus episodes, remember again, patreon.com slash Podcast. And remember, we have some new merch out for you guys right now. So if you want to check it out, head over to goingwestpod.com and click the shop tab. And last but not least, the last thing I want to say is also make sure you check out the dark parts. Support us over there. If you're into spooky things and Halloween, it's going to be so much fucking fun. We're, We're loving it. We're loving creating that show. So check it out and leave us a review. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, cheerio and don't be a stranger. 